Jewelry Makers, Lily here. Have you ever heard of the term public good or maybe common good? Does it sound really boring? Well, I'm in conversation with Millie today and she is here to convince us all that boring is its superpower and that this is actually a really critical piece of the puzzle to remaking more of the world that we want. So we're gonna have a two-part conversation. Part one is really unpacking what is this idea and why does it matter? And then part two is a deep dive into what it might look like in practice and what can we do about it. If you would like to contribute your ideas to part two, please send us an email, podcast at australiaremade.org, or give us a call and leave a voicemail for the podcast. The number is in your show notes. Okay, here's my conversation with Millie. It's Lily here. So I am uh, sitting with my delightful colleague, Dr. Millie Rooney. And what are we going to be talking to the people about today, Millie? We're talking about the public good, something I'm very excited to talk about. The public good, indeed. So Millie has been leading a really cool research project on this over like the last 18 months, basically starting in COVID, carrying us through to today. Obviously, at the moment, got an election going on. Um, And so we just wanted to kind of unpack this whole bit of interesting conversation that we have been engaging in with people and sort of explain what this is and why it matters and what we can all do about it. So Millie, I'm going to be acting as kind of interviewer today for you. I hope you don't mind being put in the hot seat. Um, But what is the public good? What does that concept kind of even mean and why is it important to all of us? Yeah, I think starting with why it's important is is probably the best place. So in around at the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020, we had the big bushfires on the east coast of Australia um, and then followed very closely by COVID. And around that time with those two things going on, we we started to hear much more loudly across the, the media and the general population conversations asking, well, why do we do what we do and why do we put our resources in some places and not others and where are our public institutions and public frameworks for public goods serving us and and where are they missing? So, for example, um, with the fires, people were talking about, you know, public media is literally saving lives, um, particularly in rural areas. We saw the value of, uh, with COVID, you know, healthcare, free healthcare, the importance of uh, JobKeeper, you know, well, it wasn't perfect, but it was an example of where we could serve the public good with an existing infrastructure. And people suddenly thought, oh, government and a collective approach to to care or to service is, is really valuable. Um, and so for the first time ever, really, people were public, or first time in a while, people were publicly asking yeah, why? What? Why do we? Why do we do what we do? What, what? What's driving us beyond you know the economy? People were saying we're making decisions about health, and sometimes it's versus the economy, and sometimes it's the same. So, I mean, I, I was really interested in the idea of the public good as a concept, and then wanted to ask, well, is it a word? Is it a phrase that means anything to to people? And 
I think what we found is that people really, the public good as we defined it was, you know, making sure that the things that we as the community decide are important are available and accessible where and when they're needed, um, regardless of whether they make anyone a profit. And that was a running definition that we've used. And I think people, people really latch onto that and really like the idea of the public good. Okay. So let me see if I got this right. Basically, the bushfires and then COVID and kind of the series of crises that we've been in for the last few years have sort of magnified to people. There are certain problems that are that we need to solve collectively, like that are too big, too expensive, or just impossible to sort of just privatize, right? Yeah. And so when times are good, it's easy to kind of think that the role of government is basically safeguarding the economy, sure, keeping the national population safe from war or whatever. But basically, the purpose of government is to be good economic managers and everything else is kind of really secondary. And I feel like what you're saying is these crises that we've been in have opened up a wider conversation and maybe challenged some of that paradigm. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the questions we asked people in the project, which, you know, I'll explain how we ran that in a little bit, but was, well, who's responsible for the public good? And I think, so there's two parts. One is people were starting to think, well, what is the public good and what does it mean to collectively care and collectively be cared for? Um, And what happens when we outsource that or privatise that? So during COVID, you know, we saw in Victoria what happened when um, hotel quarantine was privatised. And so people for the first time ever as as a big group, I think we're seeing oh, there's negative impacts to privatisation when profit is put before before health. Um, so, yeah, I think that that idea that we can collectively, that what we do collectively matters. And I think it doesn't necessarily mean that government is always the answer, but government is a fantastic vehicle we have for kind of pooling resources and working, working together. Yeah. So it's a little bit like what is the role of government, but it's bigger than that. It's kind of what do we want and how do we best provide it? And I think, yeah. you know, where Australia saw some real advantages that it had, I mean, with COVID, yes, we're an island continent and that made it very easy to put up hard borders and things that other countries just couldn't do. But we also had a really robust public health care system locked and loaded, ready to go. We didn't have to invent the idea that people could go off and get a vaccination or be cared for in a hospital for free. Yeah. Um, and then we also saw, I think, some other kind of interesting developments of like the national cabinet and, and working across party lines and listening to the experts and trying to put some of that stuff before just a you know simple concern for the economy things like doubling the rate of job seeker kind of overnight was was actually quite vivid for people it was this idea that like oh when the chips are down we need government hmm, maybe government could actually put aside the bullshit and work better for us like all of the time. Maybe it shouldn't just have to be a crisis. All right. So let's dig in a little bit more to the project. Um, Who did you want to talk to and how did you find these people to talk to and ask them about what they wanted and how it should be provided? So we wanted to talk to a real range of people, Um, you know, diversity in all its forms, age, geography, cultural background, um, political persuasion. So we spoke to people across the political spectrum, um, which was one of the more fascinating parts of the project. And, you know, it was done in two phases, but really what we were looking for were community leaders who were already within networks who were willing to then run these conversations around the public good with their networks um, so that we could have, yeah, a, a really broad perspective on the public good that that 
brought in all sorts of different experiences. Um, and those, those people then came together as facilitators to help shape how we took the conversation forward, which was a really important part of, of getting a sense of like co-creating this idea of the public good and, and putting that into practice. Yeah. So tell me about like, were there vast differences then in kind of what you were hearing from different groups? So you spoke to rural, you spoke to city, you spoke to progressives, you spoke to conservatives, you spoke to people in different faith traditions, different community organizations. Um, where did you see common threads and where did you see difference? I think in terms of difference, that's the easy one to start with because, you know, there wasn't much. Uh, I think most people were 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 very similar in what they talked about. They might have had a different language for it um, and potentially different pathways for where they saw getting to the public good. But the difference was really mostly in the experiences that people had and so what they prioritised to express to me about the public good. And I think often in these projects we you know, my job as a researcher is to pull in the major themes, but there are these stories in there that that bring it together, you know, like the the guy who I asked him, you know, what had supported him in these hard times and he said, oh, whiskey and prayer, Millie, whiskey and prayer. Um, so, you know, there's these, there's these details to the project and it was the details where there was difference. And, you know, we worked with a group of uh, refugees and what really struck me in, in that was the first thing that they said was a public good was access to family. And for me, who's who's born and grown up in Australia, who has a close family that I can access, you know, easily, you know, my mum and dad live next door, for goodness sake. Um, but for them, access to family and access to love was a public good. And and we wouldn't have heard that kind of detail if if we had missed out on listening to that group. And so when they said access to family, was that um, partly a comment on the borders being up and not actually being able to leave the country and go visit people? Or was that actually more of a sense of what's supporting me through this is even if I can't get together in person, I can get on the internet and, you know, have a Zoom with somebody? I mean, I think for different groups, it was across both, but particularly for that refugee group, you know, they 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 couldn't they couldn't go back to where their family was and they couldn't bring their family here. So it was a real sense of, yeah, bureaucracy and and rules keeping them separate. Yeah, yeah, and you can see the complexities of it, of these different, and this has been our experience all throughout COVID, like these, you know, different competing and sometimes conflicting needs that people have and keeping people safe on one hand looks like depriving them of something else that's actually really important for well-being and mental health on the other. Um, so what were some of the things that came through consistently that everyone sort of rattled off as this is what we would like to be available for everybody, regardless of whether it makes someone a profit to do it? Yeah. So if you zoom out from the beautiful little stories, the things that came through every time as, you know, so we asked people, what public good do you want available to you in your community? That was the standard question. <clears throat> and people would say uh, housing, jobs, healthcare, access to nature, access to the internet and education. Um, and they were the six and they just came through, you know, within five minutes of getting people talking, those things had, had come through every time. And, you know, for those of us who think about this stuff, it's really obvious, but I think it's important to actually emphasise that because it means that we have a large portion of this country who don't have access to those things and don't feel like, that, you know, that they've got, got those things available. And it's important to remember. And what I loved about the research was that um, what came through in the data was like, no matter where people were on that 
themselves. You know, they might have secure housing, but they wanted to make sure that it was available to everyone. And I also love that that was something that didn't matter what side of politics you were on, because we hear so much all the time about um, being, you know, it's it's not so entrenched in narrative in Australia as the US and the UK, but oh, we're divided, we're polarized. Do you feel like the public good is a uh, you know, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead maybe a little bit here, but do you feel like this is a term that is kind of anti-polarizing? Like it's something that people have some shared ideas around regardless of sort of where they fall on the political spectrum? Yeah, and I think it's a really useful term because it's it's sort of a bit boring. I mean, I, I love it. It's a funny thing to say, but it doesn't have baggage with it. It's not like the common good, which has religious connections or hippie connections. You know, the public good is sort of it, it sits in the middle as a collective thing and yeah that it didn't it worked the same across the the spectrum yeah um, and that people could flesh it out with the same kind of wish list across the spectrum yeah. is really interesting and and across age that was the other really key thing that people you know I heard a lot of older people say you know I just want to make sure the youth are cared for and then the youth are in my ear saying we're just really worried about the elderly and and again we're told we're showing that there's a generational divide, but the the actual care that I heard, you know, that divide wasn't there. Yeah. And look, I assume when people talked about access to nature, that they meant that as in like access to like healthy nature, like nature that is not being flooded or burning down or otherwise being subjected to kind of the extremes of damage to our climate. Yeah. And I think that was both, yeah, being able to physically access it. So having a road to some of it or, you know, local parks and also nature for nature's sake. Um, and, and that linked obviously to, to climate, a safe climate. Yeah. Knowing it's there, knowing it's intact. Um, access to the internet's one that I feel like is an obvious, but also it's this double-edged sword. Like we spent so much more time on the internet in the height of COVID and lockdown. And you can see why, of course, that was something that supported people and working from home and all of those things. And yet I can imagine that like, there's a part of us that just would love to switch it off forever and go, never have to look at it again. I think it's also, it's, it's access to the internet for that, you know, obviously during COVID and lockdown, it was really important socially, but for so many people, you know, access into the internet is how they access welfare payments or it's how, you know, like. It's what the internet facilitates we need that infrastructure to access the public good a lot of the time now. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's dive a little bit deeper because I feel like, you know, that's a great list. And if we did nothing else, but direct, especially in election time um, or in the next government of the country, direct our leaders attention to, can you please go about making sure that these are things that are available and accessible to all Australians. And let's have some interesting conversations about what that looks like and how we best do that, um, that that would be fantastic. But I know that actually you went deeper with these conversations and you started to notice some some sort of deeper core themes emerging. Can you talk to us about those? Yeah. And it's interesting because I didn't really go deeper. Everyone suddenly took it deeper. You know, that, that was what was fascinating is again, across across that difference across the different groups you know people would rattle off those things about housing and education and then you know within 10 minutes they'd say oh I don't know if this is what you really mean but you know I want a place where I can belong I want a place where the coffee is free and I I don't have to pay to connect with people and so the conversation every time went from sort of rattling off those public goods to to talking about this longing for connection. Um, so that was one of the really key themes that came out. There were three key themes and we can talk about them, but, you know, connection, people wanted to connect with each other and with place. 
and care. People wanted to care and be cared for, you know, two things there. And contribution, people, very strong theme around people wanting to contribute to the public good, both locally and nationally. And I think sometimes as a researcher, you can think you're going to go in and find one thing, but then you just find these other things glaring at you. And those three, the three C's conveniently, (laughs) you know, they, they just, they kind of reached out of the screen every time and said, pay attention to me. This is the public good. This is what enables those other things like housing and healthcare. Yeah. It's kind of like the core values or the underpinning foundation that you can then layer the policies on top of or the kind of tangible things. So I feel like we feel like we know what these terms are like, oh, okay, connection, great, care, sure, contribution. But if people are talking about it as needs both met and unmet, then I think that says something that we're not really necessarily fleshing them out or having the best conversation, certainly in our public debate about what these things mean. I mean, we read a lot of media coverage. We read a lot of election coverage. I'm not hearing connection care contribution, particularly in any of those articles or conversations. So can you step us through a little bit like one by one, like what are we getting and what are we missing? Like in, in connection, like what do we get about connection and where are we kind of not even really addressing it in the way that you're hearing people want? Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is quality, you know, the quality of connection or care or contribution. And we've been thinking about that as, you know, there is an infrastructure that exists for connection. And some of that's really obvious, like, you know, a road connects us from A to B. The internet is an infrastructure for connection. Um, You know, those things exist. But what we're missing is a kind of enabling infrastructure that, that drives the purpose behind that that connection. So we heard a lot about people saying, like I said before, you know, I want a place where I can, uh, where the coffee is free or where it's facilitated belonging, where I can belong to a place and I'm welcomed in, whether that's from physical infrastructure, like, you know, really nicely designed parks that sort of naturally bring people together or whether it's spaces where there are people kind of being held, whether that might be a a community festival or, you know, that was one of the things I heard a lot of, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a community festival that someone, you know, adopted us? So I think knowing that there is an infrastructure, kind of a relational infrastructure and enabling infrastructure to bring a sense of of quality to that connection. And then, you know, you can think about that, um, you know, in the workplace we're all kind of frantically working, you know, and, oh, I can't take a tea break, too busy, or, you know, you and I work online together a lot and we often forget that the the connection time, the time around the water cooler, the, the tea break is an essential infrastructure for, for the public good and for what we need. So, again, around connection, it's, you know, having your tea break, <laughs> having, you know, having the right to have a lunch break and actually taking it, um, I think, are, are really important parts of the quality of connection. And the quote that just sticks with me was a woman who said, I want to be able to belong without having to fit in. I want to be allowed to connect as myself. And I think we're so often busy sort of being efficient that we forget that the purpose of of connection is is much more than that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So this notion that um, connection is both uh, the kind of physical infrastructure, like you said, the, the, the pretty parks, um, you know, that are well-designed and inviting and places that you can be for free, um, as well as the kind of time and space to connect and having that be valued. And I also like this idea of kind of reframing things like a community 
festival or, you know, some kind of arts or musical thing as like connective tissue, connective infrastructure, things that we, you know, don't necessarily think of as infrastructure or in that way, but are actually really important um, for the quality of people to connect to one another, but also to connect to the place that they live. Um, and what about care? Because I think of all of the three C's, care is probably the one that we do talk the most about in politics or in our public life. And I know that certainly, you know, in the context of the election, that is actually one of the areas where labor are trying to differentiate themselves and say, you know, we're the party of care, whether it's Medicare, um, whether it's fixing aged care, you can count on us, you can trust us to, to put this first, whereas, you know, the other guys, well, they'll just kind of cut and cut corners and um, we can't trust them for that. But I think you're thinking about care a little bit more broadly than just the care that happens inside of formal institutions or things that we formally fund, like our health system, where, where, do, where do we stand on care? What are you hearing? Yeah, again, it's the infrastructure for care that's the sort of physical, tangible things that we, we easily identify, like you say, Medicare, childcare, you know, uh, retirement homes, etc. Um, and what we heard was it's also, again, about the quality of that and it's about what enables care to to truly happen and again that's things like staffing ratios you know the, the stats I can't quite remember but something like three minutes in some of these um places where it's like three minutes to toilet wash and dress someone you know an elderly person that that's that's not care you know that's survival of the body um so I think you know we're hearing that care needs to be woven into our institutions and our institutional care another example was a woman who had um many years ago been on welfare payments and said you know when I went to Centrelink they would say to me oh yep looks like you're eligible for this this and this here you know off you go have a have a good life um she's now trying to get her disabled daughter onto um, welfare payments and, you know, she said going to Centrelink is like being told, hmm, fill this form. No, not eligible. Oh, fill this form. No, not eligible for that one. And and there is no sense of respect or Yeah, care. it's so just I, computer I, says no, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So part of that is, you know, things like staffing ratios, a recognition that care looks different for everybody. So uh, one of the Indigenous women we spoke to was saying, you know, access to country is a part of my health plan and I need uh, I need that to be recognized as important and also that goes back to connection I, I need to be able to get there I need the infrastructure to get me there and I need that 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 to be seen as care infrastructure um, and again enabling you know time to care and be cared for and I, I think that was a really interesting part of this is people weren't just saying I want to be cared for people were saying, I want to care. I want to do the caring work and recognizing that in order to do that caring work, you know, what do you need? You need time. Yeah. So is, is and that, money. Like and if you want to, you know, you want to be able to care for your elderly parents, your neighbor, um, the sick kid, your own children, you also need yeah. the time, you need the time and the money most of the time to be able to do caring work. And I think that that thinking again about the different types of infrastructure, you know, is something like a universal basic income and infrastructure for care because it says, you know, uh, Millie, you don't have children, but you do, you know, we know that you have children in your life you might want to care for. We've freed up some of your time to care for a kid down the road. Or uh, is it 
carer's leave for everybody so that, you know, if, if I need to take carer's leave to look after my neighbour, that's that's fine. I don't have to prove that we're related or, you know, anything like that. So I think there is a type of infrastructure we can set up yeah. for care. Yeah, and just and talking about it much more widely. Like I know um, one of the things that always grates on me is when we talk about childcare, the answer is always put forth that we just need more childcare, longer hours, more affordable, the sooner the better. And like I get it and I get why we talk about that as being part of the solution and part of the puzzle. And, you know, but so often it's done from this value set of like, get back to work, you know, and how do we get more parents back to work more hours as soon as possible? And that clashes with the lived experience of many parents who are saying, actually, what I want is to be able to be home with my kid and to have that be a valid and supported um, thing that I can do in the way that I feel is developmentally appropriate for that. And, that is not saying let's send women back to the 1950s. That is actually saying something very different. It's saying let's enable care. Let's enable caring and being cared for by, you know, both parents or, and the wider community in a way that we kind of don't now. I mean, the answer is always just, you know, more childcare and sooner. And I had to laugh. A friend of mine was um, sort of talking to someone who turned out to be the wife of a very high profile uh, local politician in my community. And she apparently tells her husband, look, you guys, you've got it all wrong. You know, you're talking about extending the school day so that people who work don't have to deal with this 3 p.m. pickup. Why aren't you talking about shortening the work day or making it more flexible for people who work so that kids don't have to be, you know, in before and after school care five days a week in order to have parents who can afford to put a roof over their head? Like, and I just thought that was really cool. Like, this is a conservative, like, politician's partner. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think we need to widen the aperture of our conversation around care and why it matters and how we can best facilitate it. I think we can be a lot more imaginative. Yeah, and part, I think there's a mix here of, um, you know, there's a lot of work saying care is a really low-carbon industry, you know. So there's if you want to talk about work, there is a lot of care work. So we, how about we value and respect that work? And, 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 you know, Biden tried to do this with some of his work, like putting care as really central. So I think there, there's sort of a formal infrastructure for care and, and formal pathways where there's a direct payment for hours worked. And what we were hearing is that we need a buffer or spare capacity to enable us to take up space to care as it becomes required. And, and they're, two, they're, they're really related, but they're two separate things. Yeah. And just valuing the coming from the universal principle that at some point in our lives, we will all need care. At some point in our lives, we will all want to do caring. And so how do we facilitate that as like a human agenda rather than just trying to minimize the amount of time on carer's leave or out of the workforce as our kind of core goal, um, I think is just a more evolved place to take our conversation around what is the economy that we want and how does it work and how does it work for people? Um, Okay. And so finally, let's talk about contribution because... I feel like this is the most under-talked about and interesting one in a way of the three C's and certainly not particularly talked about from the progressive side of politics as much. You know, we tend to talk about distribution and like, you know, we're going to collect taxes and make sure they're well spent. But contribution, if it is talked about, tends to be from a bit of a right-wing lifters versus leaners kind of, du- you know, duality. And 
putting people down who aren't seen to be doing their fair share versus elevating the people who are contributing primarily through the economy. So what did you hear about contribution and how people want that public good kind of need met? Well, firstly, I totally love this one. And I think this is where some of the, well, like the optimism for me comes from this project that everybody I spoke with wanted to contribute. You know, everybody wanted to be part of the national story and and reshaping it, remaking it. Um, no one I spoke with was satisfied. Um, so I think, you know, I took a lot of a lot of heart and a lot of hope from the fact that people may not be sure how to contribute, but they really, really do want to be more engaged and they want pathways for engagement. So, you know, we we asked, remember one of our questions was, you know, who's responsible for the public good? And there were a real mix of views there from most people said the government is definitely responsible for a large part of the public good, but we're not sure they're up to the task. And that wasn't party political. That was just more broadly the way that politics works in Australia. Other people thought that business had an important role to play. Um, some people thought business had way too much power as it was, so there was real mix there. And then a lot of people said, well, the, the public good has to be driven by a community. Um, so people thought there were different kind of drivers or leaders for the public good, but, again, what was clear is everybody themselves wanted to contribute. And can we just and- pause on that note just for a sec because I feel like that goes different to the kind of dominant um, cynicism that kind of drives, for lack of a better term, the neoliberal economic model, which basically says people are selfish and people will maximize what they can get and minimize what they have to give. And I know that there is a lot of research that is talking about, look, we're not just a competitive species, we're a cooperative species. That's how we kind of survive the savannah, et cetera, et cetera. But like, yeah, to anyone listening to this, he may think, oh, that's very lovely. But you know, people aren't really that nice. People just didn't want to admit publicly to a researcher that actually they could give a toss and they just want the lights to turn on and the Netflix to be there on the couch. And actually they're not really interested in helping anybody else outside their maybe immediate family. Like, what would you say to people who are cynical about this notion that we all want to contribute and, you know, what kind of maybe stands in the way of more of us knowing how to contribute? Firstly, I think it's it's a false story that that people are in it for themselves. You know, there's there's contributing makes us feel good. You know, maybe contributing is selfish itself, but you know, there's a there was a great study about uh, housemates and share houses, and like the most harmonious share house is where everyone feels that you know it's pretty equal in terms of who does the housework, but they do a tiny bit more. So yeah, like, I, I think you can say that about marriages as well, definitely. Yeah, yeah so I, I think one, contributing also makes us feel good and is a selfish act In if you want to, you have to have that label. So I think, you know, the, the science shows that we're actually not a really selfish animal. Um, but People were wanting to contribute, but there are barriers to that. And there are barriers to that because we have some pretty crappy processes of listening to people where people feel like, you know, you someone says, what's your opinion on this new development or on this thing? And you give your opinion and then you never hear from them again. And you see a report and you think, well, that's nothing like what I said. So there's a disillusionment with the process. People aren't allowed to contribute as they would like. And, you know, let's face it, listening to people's ideas and working collaboratively is a slow process. Like 
So again, where's that buffer capacity to allow us processes that bring in contribution? Um, People, I think, don't, again, just don't know how to contribute or how processes of contribution happen. Or, you know, often with government, we're told, you know, you can go online and fill in this form, but it's it's pretty bureaucratic. And, you know, I spoke with some young people who said, oh, you know, wouldn't it be so great if there was a third party kind of institution like the Bureau of Statistics and they, you know, they got in the information and then politicians listen to that information and then listen to people like you're listening to us. And then they, that's how they made policy. And I'm thinking, yeah, yep, that's democracy in its finest form. But, you know, these are 20 year olds who didn't see our democracy working as it should. So I, I think that's, you know, there are people are finding those things difficult. But then we have to remember contribution is also taxes. It's the local volunteering that we do. It's participant, you know, it's voting. It's, it's going, you know, that is a form of contribution. But again, going back to this idea of enabling infrastructure, we've got those things set up, but they're not very flexible. And so there are other things that have to change. So we need an enabling infrastructure that means we, we set the culture of expectation that the public will be listened to. Um, and, and, you know, there are amazing people in the public service really passionate about this and trying to work on that, and it will need the will of political parties to come to the party there. Um, and, again, that time and freedom to participate. One of the groups I was talking to said, you know, I'd love to go to the local council meeting, but who's going to hold the baby? Who's going to do the dishes? And, and this beautiful group talked about, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, have a system where we, you know, wash each other's dishes once a week so that someone can go to the council meeting and participate in, in democracy. And, and I think, yeah, but where's our collective infrastructure? Because we benefit as a whole if we free people up to participate. And in a similar way to those really negative reactions to the GoFundMe for flood relief by politicians, you know, I, I don't want to be faffing around looking for which GoFundMe to fund. I, I want, I want my taxes to do that. And in the same way, I don't really want to have to be organising, like juggling who's holding which baby and doing what dishes. Where is where is that universal uh, payment or freedom or time or space so that actually all of us can participate in democracy in, in all the different ways that, that that is? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's got me thinking about with COVID how we started to see and I mean, I know when I when I had COVID, I had people dropping stuff off to my door, you know, uh, both expected and unexpected. And it, it was really the first time, probably since I had a baby, where I felt that neighborly, really practical, really hands-on, you know, and these are the things, the casseroles come when someone's had a baby or if someone's died or someone's really sick, you know, we, we know how to step up and support the people that we know and care about and in those kind of times of need. But I think what I hear you saying is like contribution, whether that's on a national scale to the national project, uh, and we need better pathways that make that more inviting and possible for people, or whether that's kind of locally and just kind of maybe recognizing and making visible and having a different kind of conversation around what does it look like to contribute? Because there are a million groups out there, right? Like there are a million organizations and clubs and things that you can do. And I think sometimes we just don't even really know where where to plug in? Like, how do I figure out my place in this? 
and what does it look like to be a kind of good citizen? Um, I know Hugh Mackay, the social researcher, talks about the health of the nation starts in the health of the local street. And he just urges people to like smile and say hello when you're walking down the street, which I know in some parts of Australia is, of course, you know, de rigueur every day. And in other parts of Australia, our bigger cities or whatever, maybe not so much. But like, I think it's, it is really heartening to hear that people are looking for new and more interesting ways to do this. Can you think of any examples off the top of your head from like that kind of big picture democracy level of like what better forms of contribution or more exciting forms of maybe democratic participation are looking like? Like I'm thinking about maybe like the flat pack democracy thing or participatory budgeting. Like, could you just maybe pick something and just explain it to people just a little bit so that they could maybe try to grasp onto this idea a little bit more firmly? So citizens' juries is one example. You know, they've run that successfully in South Australia a while ago around, I think it was nuclear nuclear waste. And so, you know, I'm not sure in that case, but in some instances citizens are paid to, or at least given a stipend to go and help make these collective decisions. Um, and, you know, experts are brought in and, and they've got time to deliberate. But how many of us would kind of panic at being selected? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Who's going to do my work while I'm on a citizen's jury? So I think, again, it is that where is our... Where is our infrastructure? And, you know, time, we keep coming back to this, time is an infrastructure we need to invest in as a society to enable us to fully engage in our democracy. And I I think, you know, you, you were saying before, people don't know where their place is. I think that's one of the issues of people don't know how to get involved. But the other issue is people can't see through the daily kind of crush of everything to carve out the time to get involved and and we're feeling quite locked out of the power that is is shaping shaping us as a nation i think that was a real tension that people talked about was wanting access to really be able to to shape the national story not feeling like they had access but then lacking the support to even engage with what we have yeah. So again, it's that how do we emphasize like a public good infrastructure is not just the public toilets or the train lines, important as those are, it's capacity for us as individuals to participate and to to contribute. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think, you know, it's also a stage of life thing, like uh, and a lot of the, you know, the circles that I'm in of people kind of, you know, still in the young family crunch years, like, oh my God, my contribution is getting my toddler to bed. Like that is me doing the best that I can on top of everything else that I've got to do to keep, you know, a roof over our head, the lights on and keep myself sane. And then I talk to, you know, the kind of generation above me whose kids are grown and flown. And a lot of them actually don't quite know how to fill their days. Like for those who aren't still working a lot of hours out of choice or necessity, there is a real sense of kind of casting around for a sense of, well, where do I plug into and where do I get back? So I, yeah, there's always going to be diversity of people's experiences in this, but I think that just having a national discussion about contribution or having these discussions, you know, having this come up as a key value in our different sort of sectors and spheres is is something that would really progress the public good. And just one kind of final thing on that is that there is an idea there of trusting each other to contribute. And I, you know, we've talked on the previous podcast about the model in Indi with the voices for, but what I love about that is that 
they trusted the community to act in the public good. Um, and how do we how do we collectively set up an infrastructure to trust each other to do that? And partly, you know, you were saying about the stories we tell each other, well, everyone's in it for themselves. Like partly it's counteracting that story and saying, no, everybody was in it for everybody else and, and we feel good. That's a quality of life. That feels amazing when you're when you are contributing and when you do know where your role is. And like you say, some people are looking for that. And then in other instances, so many people are contributing. It's not recognised as a contribution. And so even just elevating that as showing where people are doing that is important. hope that you've enjoyed this discussion and thinking about the public good and the importance of valuing connection, care and contribution as really universal themes. The full research and report is available on our website that's australiaremade.org and click on public good if you would like to learn more. Now I think we're going to have a lot of chats this year uh, that kind of reference or showcase stories of public good in action in one form or another. But for our next episode in particular, Millie and I really want to dive more deeply into this question of, so how do we put this into practice? Now we'll have some thoughts naturally, but we would really like to hear from you as well. So we know there's some incredible people out there in our community of listeners. What is this conversation bringing up for you? What is the public good in your world? What does it look like? Where is it working well? What would you change to make better? You can email us, podcast at australiaremade.org, or give us a call. The number is 02-7257-2619. It's also there in your show notes. You can leave a message for the whole show. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll catch you next time. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.